my belief is that that in talking to yourself about it, particularly if you're doing it slowly and in writing, you are forced to consider it. You're forced to think how you're expressing it because you're going to write that word down. And the more you think about it, um, the more likely you are to get out of any kind of uh, downward vortex spiral uh, and, and actually into a broader view. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So you've probably noticed that our guests vary quite a lot in terms of their background and I have to confess this doing this podcast has often felt like a huge treat of a self-devised CPD program which David and I have very selfishly curated as we've invited people on who've really sparked an interest in us either from something they've posted online or perhaps we've um, spoken about in conversation. Whilst many of our guests have had some contact with the criminal justice system, we do try and mix it up to adding guests with other specialist knowledge that we feel we can learn from. And you know we don't like the pressure to operate in a silo that we feel is often there for forensic practitioners. So a few people we've spoken to have mentioned that in some ways, many of us can end up locked up, maybe not in the traditional sense, but perhaps being a bit stuck and finding it hard to break free some of the restrictions we place on ourselves. Well, today's guest has quite a bit to say on this theme, and we think he's going to share some tips to help us all get out more in our own words. So Hugh Venables is here to talk with us about communication. And uh, Hugh, I want to steal a turn of phrase from you that you've used in a recent podcast you did with uh, Dennis Rehola. Dennis Raholo Howell for PsychReg. You've joined us today to talk specifically about the alchemy of words. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's really, really nice to see you both. Really glad to have you on, Hugh. Welcome. Thank you. Hugh, you've made a living out of working with words, it seems. Can you tell us something about how they've helped you make a living? Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, I, I can. Um, before I do, though, I, what I'm conscious of, I, I've listened to lots of your podcasts and I really enjoy them. You have some fantastic, inspirational guests on. I'm slightly daunted uh, by that. Uh, but I'm conscious that uh, very often what you're asking to do, people to do is just to listen. And I wondered if, if today we could go beyond just the listening and ask people actually to to get involved, to make the whole process more interactive. I mean, the, the thing is that what I'm going to talk about isn't really a a specialty at all. If we're going to talk about words, the power of words and the alchemy of words, well, everybody uses them. Uh, And I suppose what I want to do is encourage people to use them more effectively, more creatively and more reflectively, not only in order to understand the world better, but to understand themselves better. So um, how would you feel if I said, well, let's ask our audience if they want to, to do something with us? How does that feel? We can try anything. 
But as we're not a live podcast, I'm not sure we get much of an immediate response. Uh, no, I don't, I, I don't mind that we don't get an immediate response. It would be nice to devise a mechanism by which we do get a response. But people can join in immediately if they like. Uh, they can join in reflectively and later. Or they can not join in at all and they can just listen in the traditional way if they like. But So what I wanted to do before I introduce myself is to say to everybody, and, and you two included, uh, look around you uh, in the space that you are at the moment. You, you might be... I don't know, you might be making tea for the kids or uh, breakfast, or you might be driving a car, or you might be sitting on a train listening to this. Who knows? But around you, there are things that you can see. And I want you to alight on something that is, that, that's just taken your eye and that might be slightly out of the ordinary or slightly not. So that's one thing I'd like you to do. The other thing I'd like you to do is just to think momentarily about something that's happened today or yesterday that again felt slightly out of the ordinary or just took your mind. It, it, it might be you're walking down a street and there was a glove on a on a, a railing post, or it may be that you passed somebody who was homeless in the street. Just a little cameo of a picture. So I want you to hold that in your head too, if you can hold two things uh, in your head. So uh, there you are, a slightly unusual start, if that's okay, and people quite happy that people ignore it. You asked me to explain how words had uh, impacted on my life and provided me with the scope to, to make a living. Um, well, uh, I, I started off as a, an advertising copywriter, uh, writing copy for advertisements and leaflets and mailing letters in a, a provincial advertising agency uh, in the early 1980s. And it was a time when uh, PR was coming to the fore, particularly amongst business-to-business organisations. And so it gave me the scope then to develop a public relations division within an advertising agency. Uh, eventually, I set up my own agency. And so uh, I spent my life uh, working with words and helping people communicate. And, and I think one of the shocks of that is that there isn't any mystery to it, really. People like to think there's a great mystery and a craft to it all uh, there isn't it, it, it's simpler my, my job has simply involved helping people who have something to say to say it to the people they want to say it to in the most effective way so you know you see grandiosely i could say i am a, a retired strategic marketing communications consultant uh, but if ever you wanted words to obfuscate rather than communicate uh, well there's a perfect example of it so that's how I've earned my living. I now have the luxury of, uh, of not having to earn a living. And so I can use words for myself and my own benefit rather than trying to explain the, the benefits of an austenitic stainless steel fastener in the affixing of hardware to plastic windows, which is quite a lot of what I do for some of the time. Is it interesting you mentioned uh, uh, your original uh, profession because it reminded me of when I was a child my parents had a bookcase they didn't have many books not as nearly as many as we have each of us behind us at the moment uh, and in the bookcase they had the works of Dickens which of course I didn't read and another book called The Shocking History of, uh, of Advertising um, uh, which was a book that I did read and it stayed with me <laughs> throughout, my, throughout my life but uh, anyway, that's really beside the, the point, except that it's somewhat coloured my uh, 
my impression of advertising, I suppose. Yes, it's it's not it's not beside the point at all. I guess it's absolutely to the point, and and it's it, because it immediately alights on how influential words can be. And of course, words can be massively influential for the good, but they can also be uh, subverted for commercial gain, or they can be used for bad purposes. Um, and you know, I think we only have to look at, if I'm allowed to do it, the political situation now where some of the language and the way it's used by some of our politicians is, is actually uh, inflaming uh, violence and division. And they can hotly deny that that's what's going on. But the truth of it is that words matter. Words are hugely powerful. Uh, and there is a danger that we abuse them uh, to our own peril and the peril of others. But obviously, what I'd love to focus on is how we can use words not only to communicate with other people effectively and constructively, but also to communicate with ourselves. Because I, I worry. Uh, am I talking too much? By the way, would you like? Would you like? No, well, to... no. I was just. I was just thinking uh, as you were talking that you know that uh, I, I loved the idea of engaging people at the start, which is doing something quite different than than David and I usually do in our conversations. Um, but I was also thinking about the reason why we wanted you to come on the podcast is because we do think communication is so relevant to everybody. But also, I think, you know, quite often the people that we have on are very immersed in academic worlds, as David and I have, have been to, to some degree. And you get used to operating in one way using words when actually there might there might be other ways of using words which are more helpful um, at other times with different people or as you say with our with ourselves so that's that's why we're so glad to have you on today mm. yes that's really really interesting because every uh, industry every profession uh, has its own what, what i call register of language that is both the words that are used and the tone within which they're used and and that's absolutely fine when psychologists are talking to psychologists uh, and they're using a jargon that they all understand um, but the moment a psychologist starts trying to talk to somebody outside their profession, as long as they're using that jargon, what they're doing is actually failing to communicate. And so the really important thing is to know who it is you're talking to, uh, what you have to say to them, and how best they are going to understand it. I mean, the, one of the interesting arenas I got into was, was the, the contrast between the legal profession uh, and journalists. Uh, the legal profession is absolutely taught that what you do in order to argue a case is you start from the beginning and you work your way through and you come to a conclusion. If you think about a journalist, what a journalist wants is the, the conclusion first and then all the justification later. So uh, some of my most agonising moments were spent sitting between journalists screaming for one thing and lawyers insisting on providing it in a different way. There was a lack of communication. The role of the good marketing communications consultant is to make sure that those two uh, needs, the need to communicate and the need to understand, uh, are met. Yeah, thank you. So we love the, the phrase alchemy of words because it conjures up how, just how magical words can be, either as black or as white magic. Can you give us some examples of how they can influence others? I mean, I suppose you've just mentioned uh, 
you know, one in, in this kind of conflict between the two extremes. Yes, yes, there's the conflict between the two extremes. There's that danger of using inflammatory language that simply uh, fuels already existing prejudices. So I think there are plenty of examples of using words in a bad way. I think one of, another of the problems are with words at the moment is that we, we all think that we're writers. And, and of course, we are. We can now all... Uh, go on Facebook and we can all tweet. Uh, there's, there's a citizen journalism. Uh, there's blogging. You two are, uh, are both bloggers. Everybody writes. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that you two do that extremely thoughtfully in every uh, tweet you ever tweet and every post you ever post. Um, but there is a danger that in that eagerness to get out and say what you have to say, uh, to win an argument... Uh, and to do it as succinctly as possible, uh, the message, I don't know, can can somehow get uh, confused or misconstrued. Uh, And that's where I worry about language these days not being used thoughtfully enough. In the eagerness to respond, in that immediacy of response that you're expected to give in a digital age, somebody tweets, you tweet back. In in, in uh, my end working days, somebody emailed and then they phoned 10 minutes later to say, have you got my email and are you going to reply? In the olden days, somebody would write you a letter and it would arrive the following day and you'd know that you at least had the whole day in order to shape your considered response and get something back in the post to them for the following day. And if you didn't, well, it wouldn't matter because you would just say, oh, yes, I missed the post or it must be delayed in the post. But what you've then got is is 24 hours to think about what you're going to say rather than fire off this gut reaction. Uh, And so it's this idea that words are best used for good when they're used reflectively uh, that I think is important and that I think risks being lost in today's 24-hour news cycle tweet society? Or am I just an old Luddite? No, no, you're, you're, I think, hinting towards what was just running through my mind, that somehow the thinking and discussion gets lost and words can convey. If one thinks of of Make America Great Again, um, there's four words conveys a huge amount of meaning, probably slightly different to everybody who uses or hears the phrase. But generally speaking, it's contained within this these kind of parameters um, of something mm. that I would mainly disagree with, for example. <laughs> um, and yet, yeah, of course, the, the thoughtfulness and the discussion around all of the issues, those four words represent gets totally lost mm. Mm. yes well, i agree and we we don't have to go to america to get it get brexit done no. build back better you know if we can't say it in three words the people won't understand it the problem is get brexit done actually didn't mean anything at all or it meant so many different things to so many different people uh, that a whole load of people could buy into it and then find themselves bitterly disappointed because actually that over-distillation had failed to communicate. Uh, it had achieved an objective. It, it got a government elected. 
but actually it didn't solve the problem. And as we can see, you know, even today, we're still in the process of getting Brexit done. Um, so, yes, uh, the, I, I worry about the loss of, of discourse. And I also think that the, the speed with which people want to get out and argue their case sometimes means that they don't sit long enough to think about where they're coming from and the implications of it, the ramifications of it. And that's where you know I come to this idea that... that the purest form of blogging is actually blogging to one person. And that one person is yourself. Uh, and that's where I bring into play this idea of journal writing, that, that what you're doing is using words to explore your own thoughts, your own feelings and everything around them. So let me just, before you fire away at me, take everybody who's listening or watching back to where they were and that picture that they had of an object around them or something that had happened and so that they can just remember that what they're doing is going to reflect on that uh, in the way that we'll talk about it in a minute to see where it actually takes them beyond the purely photographic and physical. Sorry, I'm, I'm rambling all over the place. Uh, uh, rain me in. No, not at... You... So. I was just going to say, were you coming in there, Naomi? Yeah, well, I, I was just going to say, actually, that um, what had, what had drawn my eye was, was actually a red kite, which I think we'll, we might end up coming back to later in the conversation, possibly, because I, I, know, I know he's written about red kites before, but I, I suppose what I wanted to, to ask was, I think well-being um, specialists, whether they be psychologists and psychotherapists or mental skills coaches, I think are quite keen on advocating for um, clients, patients, service users to make use of journaling as a tool to contribute to their well-being. But I'm not sure that people really offer enough advice about what journaling actually entails and why journal you know or really spell out why journaling is helpful and I wondered whether you might be able to share some insights into why journaling is so such a useful exercise to engage in yeah and and here we are are, are we are we misusing language are we jargonizing here because lots of people would think uh, what is what's journaling don't they mean keeping a diary um, and in a sense, yes, the two words can be interchangeable, but the, the implication of a diary is that what you're doing is you are keeping a log of events and appointments uh, and perhaps recording in almost minute-like fashion uh, what they were all about. Whereas journaling is, is something different. Journaling is more reflective in that what it allows you to do ideally daily, if you can, is to just stop and mull over something that's caught your attention in one way or another. The glove on the, uh, on the railing, the homeless man in the street, the vase of flowers that uh, you'd only just realised somebody had put there uh, in the lounge alongside you. And so instead of cataloguing everything that happens in a day in the way that a diary would, a, a journal allows you to alight on something, reflect on it, uh, more deeply, think around it and see what that tells you about the, not just the object or the incident, 
but about you and your relation to it and its relation to the world. And that is hugely, hugely therapeutic. Uh, I, I guarantee that if you don't write a journal and you start writing a journal and you keep it going, you will learn things about yourself that you absolutely never knew and never realised. Uh, because you'll find yourself going back and reflecting on what you've been reflecting on that might otherwise just have passed by as an incident that you'd never think about again. So for someone who might be a newbie to journal journaling, what, what kind of advice would you give to get started with that? So supposing my, the red kite that I can see outside, where where should I, how should I steer my thought processes to to try and make the most of that that moment right okay um do you, do you want me to, i i i wonder how to do this i mean i i think there are some there are some rules for journaling that we ought to set out at some stage and i don't mind when we do it everybody's rules will be slightly different but you know, back to your question of um therapists suggest journaling is a great idea yes do they give enough guidance about how to do it well i'm not quite sure but i'm quite happy to give some guidance based on my own experience we'll come back to that if you like let's let's stick with your red kite or or uh whatever anybody else who's uh, who's watching or listening thought about what do you do with it well let me give you an example uh, of mine because i did this in the, in the hour before we met up uh, i sat and thought if i was if I was going to do what I was going to be in the audience doing what I've just asked the audience to do, where would I go? And I looked and there was a, a, a vase of tulips. Now, the first thing I, I think is, gosh, they're nice. And then I noticed their erectness. They're absolutely sturdy and they are thrusting skywards. They're, they're aiming for light. And I look more closely and they're white tulips, but actually they have a tinge of pink to them. And then I reflect, now is that actually because the wall behind them is burgundy and somehow the translucent petal is letting the burgundy light through or is it the promise of a second color as the as the uh, the flower opens fully um so i've got all of that and i think right i could start writing about that i could explore the physicality of what i see in front of me but then i think oh tulips and i've got a little tune in my head and that's tulips from amsterdam now, I, I can't remember, I vaguely remember half a tune and I can da di da di da some words to it. But immediately that takes me away from tulips and back to a scene I can picture in what I guess must be the early 60s. They're only very general, generalized thoughts. It's nothing specific. But this tune takes me back to when I was six or eight. And I, and I, I picture a, an impossibly smiling lady with permed hair in a, in a gingham frock with a belt. And I think there's something that I could explore. Why is it taking me there? And what is that sparking off within me that connects with me now? Why would simply looking at a flower take me right, right back 62 years? Um, and then I look again and I, uh, my eyes go from the tulips to the... Uh, ah, one more thing about the tulip. I think, yes, aren't they sturdy now? But they're actually taken out of their natural environment. Their life, because they're cut flowers, their life source has been taken away from them. And within two days, however sturdy they are now, they will droop and hang. And what does that tell us about life and mortality? So if I was journaling, look at your red kite and think all those things around it. And then 
enjoy the alchemy of writing it down. Thank you. As a psychologist, when I heard you talk about the second coming in your um, tulips, I thought, oh, here's a man who's had one one successful career as as a as in in PR and is now on the verge of another trying to start another career with with something that's more of a passion for him with the poetry so I, I i wonder whether also what journaling illustrates is that we all have have the ability to be our own psychologist in some ways that as we're exploring what happens with where our chain of thoughts go actually it might take us to revelations about ourselves that we might at other times need somebody else to to make those observations about but actually it gives us an insight into ourselves absolutely i think so and i think if we get time to come on to talk about poetry poetry even more so always you end up writing about something other than that which you started with Uh, because poetry in its alchemy has a life force of its own and it will take you into places you didn't even know you knew were there Um, and it's amazing and if it's really good poetry it'll take the people who read it into places inside themselves that possibly the writer had never intended and that's the alchemy you're taking the ordinariness of words you're putting them together and by some kind of magic they're creating absolute golden gems of insight and understanding um so yes, I've forgotten what the question was. No, uh, I know no, what you, I know what I wanted. Sorry, go on. Well, I just wanted to say uh, to anyone listening that if you're not someone who journals, then uh, taking a leaf out of your book here, we'd love to know what has stopped you. And maybe people might like to nudge us on Twitter when we publish the conversation, or posting comments on LinkedIn, or also we now have been using Substack to put a transcription up. Um, of the of the podcast so you know we'd love to hear more about other people's experience of journaling um but i was wondering about what some of the barriers are to journaling um, being a meaningful exercise for people and are we worried that nothing's important enough i mean you seem to be saying it doesn't matter how small um, anything can be important enough to to let your train of train of thought follow what i'm hoping we'll see is that absolutely everybody can do it it just involves picking up a pencil or sitting at a keyboard and starting to write and letting that what you're seeing with your eyes and feeling in your head drift down the arm and onto the page and and yes there there there's some guidelines for for how to do it but ultimately you don't you don't have to live an extraordinary life in order to have something valuable to say Bear in mind that actually, to start with, you're only saying it to yourself. Um, So it's absolutely vital that you're not self-conscious about it and that you're not restrictive. You're writing for an audience of one and the audience is you and nobody else is ever going to see it. So you can be utterly honest. You can be utterly imaginative. You can allow yourself to go in all kinds of directions you might normally not normally permit yourself to go. And you will find that it it shapes up into something that better informs you of who you are. Can I ask a quick question? Do either of you have either of you two journaled? Do you journal? Uh, If not, why not? On and off for me, time is the is the is the issue. And it's one of those things that I always value doing when I do do it. But I always think I need to come 
come back to it. And I suppose I've also had a slight hangover of um, sharing a room with a sister during my childhood years <laughs> and the mortification of having my diary <laughs> diary read. So it's it's not necessarily possible to read it, to write, and feel it's entirely um, lacking in self-consciousness. I don't know about you, David. I haven't really, uh, apart from once, which was right at the very beginning of the time when I began to work at Grendon Prison and uh, I wrote down my uh, impressions uh, and I still keep those in the same scroll. In fact, I've probably got it within a metre of me now um, and I refer back to it occasionally, but that's about the only time. Mm. Honestly, I can, I can recommend it and I understand entirely the, the, the shortage of time uh, I, I particularly had that problem when I was younger. I mean, I only started journaling in, in 2017, the 29th of December 2017. Um, uh, but uh, yes, when I was working, because I was making my living out of writing, if I had the energy to write, I felt guilty if I wasn't writing something that was contributing to my income. Uh, and so I tend to shun it. And I really regret that now. And I would urge people simply to set aside uh, 10 minutes of the day, you know, miss the first 10 minutes of the football, uh, get Coronation Street on catch up um, and just spend 10 minutes while you have a little bit of energy, just writing something. And if you can do that every day, it doesn't have, because nobody else is going to read it, it doesn't have to be a great literary work. Um, you're not trying to write anything brilliant. You're just trying to get what's in your head when you let your head loose down on a piece of paper. And maybe you two can explain to me because I don't know what it is about that process of actually writing something down that means that the processing is happening in a different way to if you, I don't know, talk it through with a therapist or talk it through with a friend. Well, I, I, I wanted to come, come to that, actually, because uh, spoken language is, uh, is mainly a left hemisphere activity. So it tends to be something that's um, more logic dominant uh, whereas when we write we use our right, right hemisphere so it's much more sort of flexible adaptive thinking it's associated with creativity and obviously these are stereotypes to some degree but it does appear that making use of your right hemisphere which is what happens when you're doing handwriting um it it it, it makes our brains work differently there is um there's a, a really fantastic book about drawing, which is called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. And mm. you get get involved in various exercises to try and switch off your left hemisphere. So, for instance, you might draw something upside down. And actually, people invariably draw much better when they try to draw something upside down because the left brain has been tricked into thinking it's a senseless, boring task and it frees up the right hemisphere mm. to do this. But... Also, um, we know that handwriting is, um, is is better than typing. So uh, when we when we start typing again, we ref we revert back to that sort of left left hemisphere activity. We become much more focused on on the task rather than having the freedom to think and be a bit more flexible in our thinking. And could just take that one bit further, cursive writing is better than printing. So when people um, engage in cursive writing, they actually do a much better job of engaging in a creative way than if they tend to use printing to try and make their handwriting more, leg more legible. 
that's, that's fascinating, ab- really. Absolutely fascinating. And I had no idea of all of that. I just knew it worked, but I, I didn't understand the science behind it. So thanks ever so much for, uh, for explaining that. So Sigmund Freud, much less scientifically, as I'm sure you'd expect, Naomi, uh, would say, get it out, get it down on paper, as he'd say to colleagues, because he knew that in some way, getting things out onto paper, particularly in cursive writing, changed it, and it would change in front of your eyes. And I've often found that too, that my understanding of something would change. Mm. Although isn't he... Isn't, isn't, isn't he potentially contradicted himself with a cigar just being a cigar? Um, so those tulips just being the tulips. <laughs> well, the thing about that story is that it's probably apophrical. Um, although some people say he said it in a lecture at the University of Chicago. Um, but then, of course, the other side of it is that he died of a, a mouth cancer, which was probably caused by smoking of cigars. Mm. And, it doesn't prove anything. <laughs> so, just, just, just while we're on the subject of, of journaling, Hugh, are there are there any rules to good? Are there any things that people shouldn't do in journal? Are there any are there any people who shouldn't keep a journal, or any practices that that are likely to be unhelpful in journaling? I, I, I guess there is a uh, there is a risk, um, and uh, this conversation ought to come with a disclaimer. Uh, that if somebody is facing particularly difficult issues that they can't get themselves out of, they might be better to talk to somebody else about it than talk to themselves about it. But I think that that's extreme because uh, my belief is that that in talking to yourself about it, particularly if you're doing it slowly and in writing, you are forced to consider it. You're forced to think how you're expressing it because you're going to write that word down. And the more you think about it, um, the more likely you are to get out of any kind of uh, downward vortex spiral uh, and and actually into a broader view. Now, I'm not a psychologist, so I have to be very careful what I'm saying. I know that my experience, you know, I I started writing my journal um, and and I called it um, If I'm 64, when I started, I was 63. I was particularly depressed at the time. I heard the Beatles song, When I'm 64, and I, I said to myself, that, that's a little bit presumptuous and optimistic. You know, I'm not quite sure I'm going to make it to 64 from 63 and a half. And that made me think, well, I'd better reflect on how I've got here and why I feel this way. And far from talking me down into a suicidal hole, Uh, it actually made me consider how I'd got to where I was and the kind of things that uh, balanced out how I felt in particularly depressive mood at that time uh, and kind of walked me out of it. So by the time I got to March, uh, I I, I looked back at my diary from March 2018 and there was this this line in it. I I got it somewhere where actually it turned out that my, my journal was now uh, not a chore. Uh, it was part confessional, but it was also friend. It was confidant. It, it deserved talking to. It didn't just take what I said. It kind of reflected back to me. It became animate in itself. Uh, so yes, like a confessional, but also like a really trusted friend. 
with whom you could be absolutely honest, knowing that your conversation with it was totally private. Um, and I think, you know, if we're going to come up with some rules for anybody who feels like doing it, do try and write something every day if you can. Uh, don't just list what you've done. Uh, pick cameo moments and explore what they, what, how you feel about them, what they mean to you. Write if you can in the present tense. Um, even though you're looking back at what's happened, write it as if you are in the moment, because that then will carry the immediacy about it. Uh, ask yourself questions, uh, but don't make them rhetorical questions. Answer them, um, because that will force you to think beyond the, the rut that you might be in. Never, ever retrospectively alter what you wrote on a day. If you read it the next day and you don't like it, well, it is still what you felt on that day. Respond to it today as opposed to alter what it was yesterday because it was true yesterday and now you're able to say, hey, actually, I see that differently today and here's why. So that part of the process is not going back and rewriting. Don't be self-conscious. Write it only for yourself. Don't show it to anybody else. And that way you can be utterly, utterly honest. And you also won't feel the need to write great prose. You're, 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 not, uh, you're not doing as the politicians do and writing a diary that is going to uh, cement your reputation in history. Um, because if you start doing that, then you're not being honest with yourself. So write just for yourself. And um, I allow myself to comment on world events just to give a, a context for it. You know, things that shock me uh, or things that please me. Uh, get a mention in there just so that I can see how my life's unfolding in relation to how the world's unfolding. And then go back later and reread it. Um, maybe a week before uh, or uh, three months ago. And you'll be amazed at the things you'd forgotten and the insights that you gained about, you, about yourself. Um, so that's it. I promise. I promise you. Start it. Give yourself 10 minutes a day to do it. It'll seem like a ch it'll be great on the first day because you're inspired. Third day, fourth day, it'll feel like a bit of a chore. Um, two weeks time, it'll got a habit. Um, three months time, it'll be an obsession. As you might gather. Thank you very, thank you very much. Sir. There's some really good tips for journaling from uh, Hugh Venables there. So we're really curious about whether anyone might be tempted to journal after hearing Hugh speak, and we'd love to hear how it goes for you. Similarly, if you're already a journaler, we'd like to know whether any of this resonates uh, for you and how you're getting on. But in more recent years, you've turned your hand to poetry, Hugh. What does poetry have to offer that other forms of writing doesn't? Uh, that's interesting. In, in, yes, you say in recent years I've started writing poetry. In, in recent years I've, I've come out as a poet. Um, I think one of the problems blokes traditionally, blokes of my age, uh, my generation have faced, is uh, the, the challenge of ever expressing an emotion or a feeling. Um, uh, I, I come from the, uh, the era of the pull yourself together school of counselling. Um, and you can imagine being a, a, a businessman 
uh, in hard-nosed Yorkshire throughout the recessions of the 80s and the 90s. Uh, you didn't go around saying, hey, by the way, I'm a poet. Uh, people weren't looking for that. So, uh, so yeah, I've, uh, I've always written. Um, poetry was particularly uh, useful to me in my, my teenage years uh, because it gave me the chance to be that awfully uh, introspective and precious teenager wandering in, in, in sort of Adrian Mole style, wondering why the world wasn't quite panning out as it, it hoped. Um, so it was a vehicle then. Uh, but now, more recently, I've had more time to write poetry and I've been more open about the fact uh, that I do it. Uh, I do think that that men particularly, maybe that's not the case now, are locked up quite often in themselves. They don't they don't get the chance to say how they deeply feel about things that matter to them. You know, I I go out and lunch with colleagues I used to uh, work with. I'd never tell them I'm a poet. Some of them because, well, they they probably stop inviting me. Um, so there's still that kind of stigma about the willingness to do something that might be considered a little bit effete. Um, but to me, it's the absolute culmination of the uh, the use of the power of words for uh, clarity and healing. Um, it's um, it's the, sorry. No, no. I was just going to interrupt you here because I was just thinking about songwriting. And I remember Martin Seeger saying to me, you know, men are criticised for not being emotionally literate and not having, not being able to talk about vulnerability. But, you know, so much of the, so much music and songwriting is generated by men, especially talking about love, heartbreak, all this sort of stuff. And I, I suppose I wonder why songwriting might be quite cool, but poetry is something that needs to be hidden under a bushel. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not sure. I, I. I am sure that that lots of men find men singing emotionally uh, a, a fantastic outlet for their own feelings. Uh, you know, I'm a, a secret lover of some country and western music. Uh, it's uh, it's great because I can worry about somebody whose dog died in a road accident and let loose my feelings separate from what I'm kind of feeling deep down. In the same way that you listen to Leonard Cohen and you're really glad that somebody is more miserable than you are when you're depressed. Um, so, yeah, I can understand fantastic outlet, uh, but I can't explain why it is that that's kind of acceptable. Um, of course, uh, lots of poets uh, are, have been men, too. Uh, they've certainly had more limelight uh, than women poets. Um, you know, if you think back, uh, think back to the previous century and uh, and the century before, the the nineteenth and the twentieth century. Good. Well, I know Naomi had suggested you might be able to re read one of your poems, Hugh, um, and um, would you be willing to do that? I, yes, I'd love to. And there's there's loads I'd like to read. But part of the difficulty of, of reading a poem is that it, it might have taken me three months to write uh, and we're expecting people to grasp what it's about in, in one hearing. Um, so I should mention that if people want to look at some of my poems, there I, I have a website that's only got about a dozen uh, poems, if that, up at hughvenablespoetry.com. Um, and we will and, share a link to that, actually, okay. Hugh. Yeah. Uh, uh, when we 
publish the transcripts, I do add links to things like websites or references that people have made during the conversation. So mm. even if you've listened to the conversation, sometimes you might get something extra out of the transcript. Um, yes. Uh, so which which poem to read? Uh, I suppose that one of the things that we've, we've touched on is the idea that um, when you're writing poetry, you start writing about one thing uh, and you end up finding that actually you're writing about something entirely different. Um, one of the poems that's up on my website uh, is, is called The Detectorist Writes. And I think I'm, I start off thinking that I'm writing about um, two guys on, on television in the Detectorist program. And I, I'm mull over, you know, the, where does the inspiration come from? Well, it, it came from looking at these two slightly inadequate guys and thinking, you know, what is it that they're doing? And, and watching them and smelling that loamy soil that they're tilling through. Uh, and I start writing about what I think is about Detectorists. And I discover by the end of the poem that actually... I'm not writing about detectorists at all. Uh, I'm writing about self-awareness. So um, I can do that one if you like, but I was thinking, I was just giving you an example of that. Uh, uh, another one where I, I, um, uh, I, I look at my, I open up my, uh, my uh, tablet and I go to switch it on. And as you know, a tablet is, is kind of blank black when you look at it. And, and suddenly uh, as I, I look in there into that black screen, uh, I, I see what is my reflection? But momentarily, I think it's my father uh, because you glance and you think, God, what's my dad doing there? And then you realise it's not him, it's you. And that, just that simple act of waiting for your tablet to charge up provides you with the inspiration to write a poem that takes you right back into uh, moments unfulfilled. Again, that that one, um, it's called Screen, and that's on the website too. But let me... Um, the, the idea of writing a, a poem where you start off thinking about one thing and you end up with another. Let's let's think about uh, Bargira, um, the uh, the black Labrador, my daughter's black Labrador that is so uh, dark black that when you try to photograph it, it, it doesn't appear on the photograph. There is just a hole where the dog should be. It's just like a, a black silhouette. It's absolutely amazing. And in fact, I'm going to put a picture of it up on the site so that you can see it. So I start writing about the um, uh, about the dog, um, and and the poem's called Black Dog. Uh, but of course, uh, Black Dog for anybody who's ever suffered from this depression, you will know is is something entirely different too. And by the end of the poem, when the dog has reminded me, uh, I find that I'm not talking about the dog at all. I'll not tell you anymore. I'll just read it. It's only short. Black dog, black dog, liquid silhouette, viscous shadow, apparitional chic, whose shape materialises from darkness only when the light from some random street lamp or the moon ripples silver on its undulating silken sheen. Don't confuse me, his doleful eyes implore, with that other beast which hounds and gnaws at souls. I reach down deep to stroke the lustrous coat, take comfort from its soft familiar touch, its pungent warmth, the smell, the taste of dust, 
or some pain caressed beneath the sacred folds of flesh. That's a, that's a lovely uh, poem, Hugh, and um, as, as you've been saying all along, really, words stimulate uh, thoughts in the mind. And uh, so that took me back immediately to when I was a cub um, and Bulgaria, there was Bulgaria and Arcana were the leaders and co-leaders of the uh, cub troop. So you've immediately taken me back to... There you go. My, if uh, you were writing a journal... <laughs> then that's where you would take it today. Your entry today mm. would simply be about where words about a black dog called Bargira had taken you. So how do you decide what to write about? Where do you get your inspiration? As I say, your, your inspiration absolutely comes from anywhere. Um, Naomi was talking about Red Kite. I, I, I was uh, driving down the A1 uh, and suddenly uh, there was a red kite above me uh, and it, it, it seemed to catch my eye uh, and it penetratingly gazed at me while I was driving and its its wings seemed to span the width of the road I was on uh, and it, it, it took me into all kinds of places. So it can be sim as simple as that. Uh, nature is hugely uh, inspiring um, and... Um, Birds, particularly. I mean, I've heard a number of poets say this, that they don't even like birds particularly, but birds keep cropping up in, in poems. And it may be something about the uh, the freedom that, that they offer. I mean, if you time for me to do another one, I'd, I'd do you uh, one about um, uh, a, uh, a bird, um, a gannet that, that I saw Um uh, I was at uh, Abadaran on the Klin Peninsula, uh, and I was I was on my own, uh, and I, I was I was standing on the beach, and I looked up and I, and I watched this gannet perform, and you know they, how how fantastic they are, how they they hit the water at amazing pace, they they turn themselves into arrows and they uh, they hit into the water, um, but if I was you know, I start just describing that, but actually. It takes me somewhere else. It takes me to my own limited mortality. Have you got time for me to do it? Please do. Okay. Gannet at Abadaran. He must have chanced upon a shoal, his crucifix of black-edged wings spread wide in exultation. Then, arched and twisting, he tucks them tight as quivers, piercing first through strident breeze, then cutting sharp, oblique into a fleck-capped azure blue, his incision leaving only plumes of pure white spray. He clips the spume across the folds of sea, while brilliant sunbeams tip each crease of wave with dancing shards of dazzling light. He soars and glides and soars again and dives and feeds and banks against a wedgewood sky, while I stand still beached the inexorable advance of time and tide shuffling a shimmer of shingle beneath my earthbound feet thank you so i mean that poem which which contrasts really the sort of soaring freedom of the uh, bird with your sense of feeling yeah, trapped within time and 
space. It reminds me of something that you've said previously, because you've talked about poetry being a bit like a prison. Uh, there are rules which can feel very restrictive. But, there, but clearly, when you write your poems, you feel freed um, from something. Can you say a bit more about that? Sorry, yeah, it's, it's not very clear what I'm saying. Yeah, no, it, it is clear. It's a fantastic contradiction. You know, why, why don't people read poetry? Why don't people like poetry? I suspect they were put off from poetry at, at school because poetry tended to be da 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 So you you kind of got carried along by the the rhythms of it without actually seeing the meaning. And and um, the, the, the the poems that I've I've just read to you show that actually you don't have to have that formal form of rhyme and verse to write poetry these days. Poetry can be much freer and you know a poem from the way that the whole thing holds together. But sometimes, and this is the, the, the kind of contradiction that you're... Well, just, just, yeah. before, just before yeah. you go on, to, go on to that in terms of how it's helpful, though, I, I was thinking about... My, I did English Literature A-level, so I did quite a lot of poetry as part of that, but I suppose what you end up... The message that you can kind of end up getting that poetry might look like one thing, but actually it's talking about something very different... And usually there is a definitive version of what the very different is. And so you have you have to be knowledgeable enough or insightful enough to deduce what the subtext of the of the poem is, what the alternative meaning is. And I think poetry is quite frightening to people because they worry that they're gonna read the they're gonna read what it is on face value. They might assume that's it, when really everyone else knows that there's this other conversation that's going on underneath and they've not grasped it maybe maybe that's just me um but i think i think people are frightened of getting tricked by poetry that it will somehow expose what they don't know and i and i, I suppose what i've heard you saying today is that actually we put we put an interpretation on poetry that actually reflects us whoever whoever we are so actually the it might say something else about the poet but equally whatever you make of it is is important for you, um, not just what the poets, what what the poet was really writing about. Absolutely, yes. That first of all, the, the poet quite often is overtaken by the poem. So you know, he can say until somebody else points it out to him, he didn't even know he was saying something, or a, a particular thing there. He might have thought it was something different. But certainly, yes, a poem, a poem works when it connects with its reader. And its reader's connection can be coloured by who the reader is and what their need is at that time. So there doesn't have to be a right or wrong interpretation of a poem. A poem is a collection of words that shape into a form of power and beauty that touches you. And it's as important the touch that it has to you as whatever it was that the writer meant. So, yeah, I think we have to get out of that idea that there is only one way of reading poetry or that poetry is difficult um, because it isn't. It needn't be. Enjoy the sound of the words. Um, the, there are poems that I don't understand. The, the Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, probably the, the most important poem of the 20th century. Uh, I can't profess to understand it. I've read a biography of what it's about. I still don't understand it. But I can just enjoy 
the, the sound and the shape of the words and the connections with the bits that I do get. So I go along with that. But to come back to David's point, just uh, briefly, yes, uh, there is that freedom in poetry, but this idea of being locked up, this idea of, of imposing on yourself a structure, right, I am going to rhyme lines one and three and lines two and four in this poem, or I am going to have only 10 syllables in the line with the stress on the second syllable, you know, every second syllable, might sound like a massive restriction that prevents you saying what you want to say. Uh, but in fact, that sense of being locked into a structure actually makes sometimes makes you think even more deeply about the words that you choose, the rhythm that they're going to provide, uh, the sound that they're going to make that's going to create the rhyme that takes you to places in language you never you never thought you could get to. Uh, and so, yes, I uh, possibly half of the poems that I write rhyme or have some formal structure. Uh, the other half don't. But what's interesting is that it's the poem that leads whether or not it requires that. Um, but yes, it is the, it's, it's coming back to this theme of, of locked up. Um, uh, poetry gives you the chance to unlock yourself, but sometimes the confines of it can help you unlock yourself even more, which is a and wonderful that, contradiction. And that does parallel very nicely with prison because there are people who talk about actually being sent to prison was was a turning point for them. That's you know I think there's read a number of biographies of people where they talk about actually they got something positive out of the experience of going to prison. Jerry Barton in his in his um, autobiography mm. talks about um, prison being something that was helpful. So by having that sense of structure and restriction around him managed to actually turn his mind to something that he probably badly needed to turn his mind to mm. and you know you see that quite quite often in, in well obviously mm. not as often as, as, as you mm. might hope but for some people prison I think has been helpful at times and presumably you find that both, David sorry so, sorry I was going to say presumably both of you have seen people writing in prison whether it's journalism journaling or fiction or poetry that's actually helped them come to a better understanding and a, great, a greater sense of freedom for themselves. Yeah, and also seen some amazing creativity as, um, in prison. Obviously, there's the Kaizen um, exhibition that they have uh, down in London, which is artworks of all sorts. Um, but, you know, I've seen animations, um, poetry, um, I suppose the equivalent of a blog, you know, a small essay um, written um, in, you know, very powerful very powerful language. Good, yeah. To, in answer to your question earlier, Naomi, I was going to say, yes, I, I, I think I agree with it because the thing is that everybody's different and has totally different needs. And some people do have the kind of uh, resilience to be able to benefit from some of the often meagre offerings that they find in, in a prison setting. We, we mustn't forget that we've asked the people who are watching and listening to think about their own topics for writing. And I'm not suggesting that anybody would want to write a poem about it, but hopefully listening to the way that uh, ideas can spark and work within a poem will guide people as to the kind of things they can do in exploring what it was they've looked at or thought about from the beginning uh, of this programme. 
Yeah, I think as you've been speaking, it's been easy to see that there could be a natural transition for people from journaling to then poetry as something might be shaped up to a, to a slightly bigger, more enduring idea that might even make it be outed at some, at some point. Hugh, we always like to ask our guests how they keep themselves psychologically well and nourished and we can hear that words are really special to you but I wondered whether there might be any other advice that you would offer up to people listening to the podcast. Uh, oh gosh, yeah, I mean words are so special and that just uh, encouraging other people to think about uh, writing down what it is going on in their head is important but yeah, there are other things that I do uh, apart from writing. I, I think I mean, it sounds ever so so dull, but there, I, I can think of two things that have have uh, played a major part in helping me to feel better. Apart from you know, the love of family and good friends, naturally, but there, the two things. One is walking, and and I, you know, I, it's it's so obvious. Uh, it's lovely that in Scotland now they prescribe walking as as a, a as a a, a part cure. Uh, for a lack of well-being um, but uh, I, I used to walk uh, and lots of my earlier poetry was about walking almost as a kind of self-punishment really if, if it didn't hurt uh, then it hadn't been a good day's walk now I find walking in good company is absolutely brilliant because you get all of the pleasure of the outdoors all of that changing scenery that you have time to stop and observe, but also you have conversation that, because you're walking for six hours in a day, can ramble all over the place, from the profound to the tr profane uh, to the trivial. Um, and so, yeah, walking either alone or in good company and taking time to assimilate what's around you, not dashing to get there and not feeling that it needs to hurt is one thing. But the other thing that I actually started doing when it hurt too much to walk up hills and people kept overtaking me as I was stopping for breath, I started carrying binoculars uh, with me to pretend that I was stopping not because I couldn't breathe, but because I was bird watching. Um, and and uh, since then, I've developed a love of bird watching. And the thing that's, that that's taught me is that quite often you spend your life chasing after what it is you think you want. But actually, if for a moment you sit still, you will observe that lots of what you want is around you. I can sit somewhere and think there's no bird life here and I can wait for 10 minutes and I'm absolutely surrounded by the most vibrant bird life. And that learning the art of patience uh, through bird watching is, is something that's uh, still being in good stead. It's been great. That's a lovely evocative image there at the at the end. But also, as you were talking about the walking, I was thinking, you know, such on this, we've we've spoken about the brain today and and how complex our brain is and how how things can can really shift. And you know, just thinking about your walking, I'm wondering when you were walking on your own, whether you found yourself looking down more, and when you're walking in the com which is associated with having a lower mood, and when we look upwards and outwards that that's associated more with an optimism about the future and whether you find yourself doing that more when you're walking in a, I don't expect you to answer don't worry. No, it, it, it's again fabulously insightful Naomi it's a thing that I wouldn't have realized I had done 
But if I think back to some of the poems that I wrote while I was walking alone, I can think that it was to do with looking down at the heather ripping at my ankles. Whereas now uh, I am, as you say, looking up. And I'm sure that is partly to do with having good company around you with whom you can share the things that are out there. And as we walk the wolds, my walking mate and I, we just stop and are in awe of the the landscape and everything that envelops us. Well, uh, uh, related to that also, I don't know, you know, I, I was really shocked or surprised that that awful um, cliche of blue sky thinking actually has some basis in science. <laughs> that actually, if you're if you're in an open space where there is no ceiling, that actually you're much more likely to have creative thoughts mm. um, enter your mind than if you're in a, a small room where it's it's restricted. Right but. But finally, Hugh, it's been great to have you on today, but I think since you are a poet after all, I wondered whether you might offer us up another poem another poem to finish on. Uh, if you can cope with another one, <laughs> I would I would love to. But yeah, just a reminder that it would be lovely if people did write in to the podcast um, with their thoughts about what we've talked about and ideally what it is they've created around the things they've been observing while we've been talking. Um let me do, uh, we talk about nature being uh, the fabulous cure. And, and I guess uh, one that I'd, I'd like to do is about the power of nature to heal. Um, uh, you're not old enough uh, to remember 1963 uh, and Dr. Beeching uh, and his savage cuts to the railway system, um, where so many lines were closed, uh, two, over 2,000 stations were closed, lots of jobs were lost. Um, and, but what we ended up left with were lots of uh, man-made uh, passages, arteries through the countryside um, that have gradually been reclaimed by nature. Uh, and uh, so I uh, was up in the, um, in the Bremish Valley, up near the Cheviots on the, the Scottish borders there. Uh, and was looking at one of these uh, one of these railway lines with a cutting and an embankment, and uh, and it, it just sparked me off. And the beauty of it was that that there were lots of of words that you could use that both relate to railways uh, and that relate to nature. So you've got branch and roots and cuttings and sleepers, and so suddenly language, this alchemy of language opens up to watch the way that the original railway lines then morph into this amazing uh, natural scene. Uh, so here's a poem. It rhymes. Um, it, it's rhyming, rhyming couplets. Um, and it's... Ah, uh, oh, one other thing to say. Again, you're not old enough to remember Night Mail, uh, the famous GPO black and white film made in 1936, uh, music by Benjamin Britten, and a poetry section by W.H. Auden. Uh, this is the nightmare crossing the border, uh, bringing the check and the postal order. This lovely, insistent rhythm of a poem with music behind it that, that kind of plays the sound of the steam train. And the poem that I ended up writing, of its own accord, picked up that rhythm. I had nothing to do with it. It did it. Ghost Train. Beaching takes the blame. A name forever blighted. But these same forgotten lines branch out, new roots through time, 
and sinewed coarse cut cuttings, fine embankments of foxgloves and clover, the fading ramparts of a conquest over, arteries lush with ferns and grasses, where gorse domains and blackthorn passes for upholstery. And sleepers, fox or rabbits, stir amidst the haunting echoed blur of passing steam. The scented whispered trail of ghost trains carrying vital mail, crossing northwards the imaginary border, but eclipsed now by a natural order. The gilded liveries of softly falling leaves. Thank you so much, Hugh. Really enjoyed having you on today. It's a great conversation. Lovely. Thank you. Yeah, there's some beautiful poems there, Hugh, and uh, a great conversation. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you so much for having me. I have really appreciated it. Thanks again.